You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Basically, I'm not sure that there is any transition that is not a just transition. I think the growth of distributed resources is basically unstoppable. For August 23rd, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. Like a building that starts to appear as you approach it in a thick fog, the clean energy system of the future has slowly started to become discernible since we launched this show eight years ago. As we recounted in our episode 200 retrospective, there were a lot of questions that we didn't know how to answer back then. How quickly could solar and wind grow from about a 5% share of electricity generation in 2015 to something more significant? Would natural gas continue to be the so-called bridge fuel to a clean energy future? Or would the world keep a lot of coal plants around and just retrofit them with devices to capture and sequester their greenhouse gases? Or would nuclear become the dominant source of clean power? And what would the future look like for utilities? Would they lead the transition by retiring their dirty assets and replacing them with clean ones? Or would they white-knuckle their old assets to the last possible second while consumers led the charge, sending utilities into a death spiral? Although the future is not yet written, I think a lot of those questions are now largely resolved. The trajectory of the energy transition is becoming as clear as a contrail in the sky. And along with it, some of the ideas that we discussed in earlier episodes of the show that might have seemed a bit futuristic or distant at the time are starting to look highly probable. Among those ideas are those of Lorenzo Kristov, who joined us previously in episodes 10, 94, and 150. In episode 10, launched in 2016, Lorenzo explained his vision for a new kind of grid architecture and approach to marketing electricity that is designed for the distributed, decentralized grid of the future. At the time, there wasn't much actual challenge to the utility paradigm that had dominated the grid for a century, and his ideas might have seemed fairly theoretical. But since then, millions of EVs have hit the street, potentially becoming a major source of stored electricity for the grid. And we've had so many rooftop solar, battery backup, and other devices being installed that can respond dynamically to grid conditions that we recently needed to have a whole discussion about virtual power plants in episode 197. Meanwhile, most utilities have made it clear that leading the energy transition is not their intention. Now, the decentralized grid that Lorenzo was thinking about seven years ago is looking not just plausible, but downright necessary. All along, Lorenzo has continued to agitate for this new architecture, frequently issuing white papers and expert testimony to get regulators and others thinking about what the grid of the future should look like. And they are taking his ideas seriously because he was a lead designer of the Locational Marginal Pricing, or LMP, market on which California's wholesale power market system operates. He has deep expertise in wholesale market design, DER participation in wholesale markets, coordination of transmission distribution system operations, distribution system operator or DSO models, and distribution level markets, microgrids and energy resilience strategies, and whole system grid architecture, among other things. 
So after our conversation in episode 204, in which veteran utility regulator Audrey Zibelman shared her view that we should be rebuilding the grid from the bottom up, I decided to invite Lorenzo to return to the show and share his latest thinking about how to do it. And yes, I have again given this episode a geek rating of 10, as it concerns market design, architecture, procurement, regulatory issues, and related topics that will be hard to understand for those who haven't already spent considerable time thinking about them. Then in the news segment, we'll check out several microgrid initiatives in California. We'll update an initiative to build a ground source heat pump network in Massachusetts. We'll see how the PJM is working to clear its interconnection backlog for new renewable energy projects. We'll consider why we shouldn't expect fossil fuel companies to ever pivot to supporting the energy transition. And we'll find out why one French city has abandoned its plans to deploy hydrogen fuel cell buses in favor of electric ones. But before we go to the interview, we'd like to remind students returning to school that we offer half-priced annual subscriptions for students. That's right, for just $30 a year, you can have access to our entire catalog of over 200 full-length shows, complete with our extensive show notes and references, as well as our exclusive job board. It's like getting a graduate education in energy for the price of a dinner. Just go to energytransitionshow.com slash discounts to find the link to our student discounts. And if you think your university could benefit from making our complete shows available to everyone through the school library, just as they do with journals, just go to energytransitionshow.com slash group options to see all of our licensing options and get started. And now our interview with Lorenzo Kristov, recorded June 28th, 2023. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Lorenzo, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. It's always a delight to talk with you. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's always a delight to have you on. So in your previous appearances on the show, in episodes 10, 94, and 150, you've described your vision for a decentralized power grid in which customer-owned and distribution-connected resources, collectively known as distributed energy resources, or DERs, like rooftop solar systems and battery backup systems and electric vehicles, as well as community-level solar and storage and vehicle charging systems and so on, could play a much larger role on the grid. And you've explained why this decentralization would deliver more reliability, resilience, and equity than conventional centralized hub-and-spoke design that the grid has had since its inception. And we've talked about how power markets would also have to evolve along with the topology of the grid as it becomes more decentralized so that DERs have ways to get properly compensated for the value they provide just as traditional utility-owned power plants do. In fact, one of my favorite points that you made in episode 150 is that in a grid emergency where operators resort to load shedding, that is, cutting off power to some customers in order to keep the grid from going into a total blackout, like what happened in February 2021 in Texas, as we discussed in episode 145, those customers who lost power should be compensated for providing a load reduction service that benefits all the other customers who did not lose power. And that's not too different from various kinds of utility tariffs that compensate customers for other kinds of demand response, like turning down or turning off EV chargers when the grid is stressed and demand is high, or allowing the utility to draw some power from customers' battery storage systems. We recently discussed numerous examples of how customer resources can act as grid assets in episode 187 on Vermont and in episode 197 on virtual power plants. So I think you've made the case well for a broader role for DERs. 
Now I want to take the conversation a step farther and talk about why we should be creating a more inclusive framework of policies and regulations to encourage the proliferation of DERs, to maximize the benefits they can provide, and even substantially meet new demand growth due to electrification, rather than relying predominantly on procurement of more conventional utility-scale assets. But before we get into the topic, I want to quickly address a terminology issue. In recent episodes, I have preferred to refer to DERs as, quote, customer-owned resources or customer resources, mainly because I think it's kind of geeky and hard for lay people to understand what DERs are. Also, for the purposes of policy and media, for that matter, I think the important distinction is not where the resources are located, but who owns them, who has the agency to develop and control them and benefit from them. And I thought it was just a more useful definition for, say, a utility commissioner or legislator. It's also a more easily comprehensible term for a layperson just reading the news who might not even know that there are centralized utility-owned and quote-unquote distributed resources out there, or even care about that distinction even if they did know that. Whereas anyone can understand what allowing a utility to tap their customer-owned resources means with no further explanation needed. A customer-owned descriptor can also work for resources that are not behind a customer's meter, like a community solar system that's owned by local residents. But you have good reasons to prefer the DER term. So just to quickly get this terminology point out of the way, why don't you share those with our audience? Sure, happy to. I don't know how quick it'll be. There's a lot of threads there in what you raised. Yeah. First of all, I want to say that the ownership of the energy assets is crucial, in my opinion. And it's a key theme of the decentralized vision I've been working on, especially as regards energy justice and the economic benefits of locally owned resources. So it is crucial, the ownership aspect. But the other part of it as to where a resource is interconnected, and specifically whether it's behind a customer meter on site, what you're referring to as customer sided resources, also called behind the meter or BTM, versus directly connected to the distribution utilities wires or front of the meter, FOM, I use that abbreviation. That distinction has crucial implications for how resources can interact with the grid and how they can participate in various markets and revenue opportunities. And that becomes really crucial then to how DERs can proliferate. And therefore, regulators and legislators need to understand this distinction and its implications as well. Now, I've been following some of the work going on in Australia. They adopted terminology there. They use CER for customer energy resources, meaning behind the meter on site, versus DER to mean distribution system connected resources or front of the meter. And that's a good distinction, but I'm concerned about using it here because it's not really common usage in the US. So for our conversation today, I'll probably use use DER to mean the big umbrella term that includes both behind the meter and front of the meter resources, regardless of where it's interconnected. But the D distinguishes that it's on the distribution side of the whole system rather than on the transmission side, which historically and traditionally has been where most of the supply resources have been located. Now, just to expand a little bit on why this front of meter, behind the meter distinction is crucial for how a resource interacts with the grid and the markets, there are certain things that become very relevant. 
One is the interconnection procedures that they go through. If a resource is behind the meter and it's only going to modify load, then it has a much simpler interconnection in general. This is certainly true in California, but I think it's true in a lot of other places as well. Whereas if it's in front of the meter and it's injecting power and it's participating in wholesale markets, then it has a more complicated and costly interconnection procedure. And secondly, if you're talking about demand response or load flexibility, which is a hot topic now, those have to be behind the meter resources because they have to be co-located with load. They're going to be used basically to modify that load. And then finally, there's been a lot of discussion going on about whether a third-party aggregator who's forming a VPP or the network operator should be able to directly control devices behind the meter, or should they have control relationship with the customer at the point of interconnection. These are architectural kinds of considerations, but it all relates to where the resource is located, and it's independent of the question of who owns the resource. So. While resource ownership is important, and I will talk about it a lot, it doesn't tell us enough about how the resource is going to interact with the grid and the markets. And these interactions determine whether a resource is going to be financially viable or not. And ultimately, financial viability of DERs, and that means what are the incentives for parties to invest in DERs? What are the incentives for them to utilize the full capabilities of those assets, engage in economic transactions? That's really a key driver of the reforms we're going to talk about. Uh, final point I'd make is that the ownership question is not mutually exclusive to the behind-the-meter or front-of-meter distinction, and they're both important. So, for example, what we refer to as community solar now, that's the idea of a front-of-meter solar or perhaps a solar plus storage resource that allows customers to subscribe to some of its output. That may be owned by customers, it may be owned by a local co-op, or it may be owned by a third-party business, or it may be owned by a developer. So. Ownership doesn't automatically be determined by a community resource. When I get into, and we'll come back to this a little bit more, when I get into the idea of reforming the distribution utility as an open access distribution network, open access, the idea borrowed from what FERC created for transmission back in the 90s to start wholesale markets. The notion of open access means non-discriminatory network service for any customers and resources who are attached to the network, regardless of ownership. So we want to define an open access framework that's separate from the ownership question, but once we have that kind of framework in place, then we open up possibilities to create ownership models and investment models that can be local. So in any event, to wrap up that portion of our, our conversation, I'm going to use DER generically for the big umbrella. And when I'm talking specifically about behind the meter or customer resources, I'll say that. But generally, DERs means the whole thing, everything on the distribution side. Okay, that's really helpful. So clearly there are architectural reasons, business model reasons, physical reasons, market reasons, <laughs> all sorts of reasons for using these different terms and 
frankly, I feel like this whole question of terminology still needs some work. But anyway, I really appreciate those distinctions that you've made. So let's get into your thinking on how to put DERs front and center in procuring grid assets as we proceed with the energy transition. And I think I'd like to start this conversation with this proposition. It's becoming increasingly evident that the energy transition will require us to rebuild much of the grid, especially the generation assets. At the same time, the rapid revolution of DER technologies is making local electricity supply solutions increasingly attractive and cost-effective. So we should take this opportunity to rebuild it using the assets that customers want and need from a modern, clean, 21st century grid, and not just build more of the same kinds of assets that we built in the last century. In other words, we should be rebuilding the grid using a bottom-up strategy, starting first with the energy needs and priorities of customers and communities, and facilitating the deployment and financial viability of local DER-based solutions, and only then considering utility-scale assets to provide the residual need, instead of the conventional top-down approach of building utility assets first and then limiting DERs to a very minor behind-the-meter kind of load management role. So how would you support that statement? Well, I'm in complete agreement with what you're suggesting, and the way I have characterized it is we've always traditionally had the grid which was the bulk power system where all the supply resources have been traditionally a distribution system that's essentially a one-way kilowatt hour transportation service and then customers at the receiving end and how i want to rethink it is that we have a robust participatory distribution network which is a complement to the bulk power system so that really these two parts of the system act in a coordinated way and they both have energy supply they're both providing electricity services ultimately for customers but on the distribution side all the customers all the connected resources now can participate in economic transactions on that network so in my view we can't get to the goals that we have for the energy future just with the bulk power system and I certainly don't claim we can get there just with DERs either although that straw man has been used to argue against DERs and I've heard it way too often can't mm -hmm. run a grid on DERs mm -hmm. and of course we can't run a grid entirely on DERs but we can achieve the objectives that we want just with the bulk power system and to support that notion I really focus on two specific goals that I think are preeminently important in addition to decarbonization, because that, unfortunately, decarbonization sucks a lot of the, maybe this is ironic, the oxygen out of the room. But equally important are resilience and energy justice. And both of those have very important local dimensions. When we get to resilience, for example, I think that as a prudent society, policymakers need to prepare for grid outages. We can't just harden the grid and call that resilience and think that we're done. Yes, it's good to make the grid more resilient, but if we look at resilience from a customer's perspective, it's how do I make sure that we have electricity for essential services under all conditions, and in particular, when grid outages occur. Texas, which you brought up a moment ago in 2021, there were something like 200 people that 
died from exposure to the cold because there was no place to go. There was no backup service that could take care of them. So resilience, I think, requires, in addition to whatever we may do to strengthen the grid, it also requires building local resources that can operate when there's a grid outage. And then when we get to energy justice, I think the importance of locally owned resources, locally owned and operated, being able to supply electric services to businesses and residences in their own neighborhoods locally are a really crucial way to advance energy justice. We're in a culture, in an economy, where you build wealth by owning productive assets. And what DERs enable is not just a decentralization of technology, but an actual decentralization and a democratization of the ownerships of the assets. And I'd point to an interesting paper that just came out from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance called Advantage Local, Why Local Energy Ownership Matters. So they have a good discussion of these ideas. So locally owned assets integrating local economy are a vehicle to build community wealth and economic health. And I'll also mention, I think some of the listeners may be interested, last year I participated in the Minnesota Excel rate case as a witness for the Just Solar Coalition. And the thrust of that intervention, I and four other witnesses, it was a whole package, was to argue to the commission that energy justice needs to be a crucial decision-making criterion in their rate cases. I believe this was the first of its kind intervention in a utility rate case. But in any event, our emphasis was a whole lot on distributed resources, local resources, local energy production, etc., as a way to strengthen energy justice. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. 
The city of San Diego is installing eight solar-powered microgrids at municipal facilities to reduce the city's carbon footprint, save taxpayer money, and increase community resiliency during power outages. The sites include fire and police stations, community centers, and recreation centers, enabling them to serve as shelters or supply distribution centers during grid power outages. The city likened installing the microgrids to installing a backup diesel generator, but without the greenhouse gas emissions. The city estimates the microgrids will save the city $6 million over 25 years. They will use batteries to store excess solar energy generated at the facilities during the day, then draw power from those batteries during the afternoons and evenings when solar generation tails off and grid power prices rise. The microgrids will be developed, owned, and operated by Shell New Energies, an arm of the Dutch oil giant Shell. Shell is also providing part of the funding, along with the California Energy Commission, which is providing $950,000 in grants. Gridscape, a California-based renewable energy provider, is also involved in the projects. The microgrids will help San Diego reach its goal of powering all municipal buildings with renewable energy by 2035 and reducing the facility's energy use by about 35%. The San Diego microgrid projects came just months after the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, rejected an application from energy-as-a-service provider Sonova Energy to build microgrids as part of new home communities that would serve as many as 2,000 homes. The CPUC argued that the Sonova application would amount to making it a monopoly public utility and require significant changes in how the state defines the rules and obligations of a public utility that would be better addressed as part of a rulemaking rather than as a one-off application. And on the same day the Sonova application was rejected, the CPUC approved a $200 million program for the state's major investor-owned utilities to run their own microgrid programs. Item 2. Listeners may recall that in News Item 1 of Episode 169, we reviewed the efforts of two Boston-area women to redirect some utility investment away from replacing aging and leaky natural gas distribution pipes and toward district heating demonstration projects using ground source heat pumps. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.